Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Do You Know What? My name is Rebecca Singerman-Knight and I am joined, as always, by my good friends and my co-hosts, Rabbi Charlie Baginski and Leo Mindell. We are recording this on the morning of Monday, 24th of May. So it's a week after stage three of the lockdown has been released, although I am losing track. Charlie, did you do anything over the weekend that you couldn't have done the weekend before? I bought my kids trainers in a shop rather than online, which was um, an expensive experience, but also made me realise that I've been shoving my children's feet into shoes going, you're fine. Ellie said to me, I've been feeling like I'm tilting forward for quite a long time. It's like, no, you're fine. So um, she had um, her feet growth validated, which was uh, good. But I also went on our on our walk, which has become a standard part of mm. existence. And it's always been, we, we go quite regularly to Whippendale Woods near our house and it's usually heaving. And I was staggered this weekend that it was empty. Um. I know the weather was fairly shocking, but even with shocking weather, it's been packed and so suddenly it's like everybody's having their kids feet measured or their own feet everyone's measured. Everyone's in the pub. That's where everyone's they in the everyone pub. Everyone has gone yes. back to the pub. That's interesting, isn't it? So because are we all going to carry on with our daily walks? Because that is definitely something that, you know, a lot of people have said has been a good thing about lockdown or are we all just going to go back to the pub and if that's anything to go by Charlie it's the latter yeah definitely I mean I went for my first meal in a restaurant which I didn't do doing pay to eat out or don't eat out to help out I didn't so this was the first time I'd eaten in and what amazed me was how quickly it felt normal I think as humans I've said it before but we have very short memories I think as much as they're things that we think we're really going to hold on to this we're going to be so great about walking I'm not sure how much in a year's time will have changed. I mean, if you think about how quickly everybody adapted to the lockdown originally, which was at the time such a major deal, I think the process of adaptation back to normal life is going to be quite quick as well. Leo, what about you? Did you prop up a table in a pub over the weekend? Well, I actually did go into a pub on Friday. Uh, no, sorry. I did actually go into a pub on Thursday. Was that just a quick change in case your rabbi was listening? Yeah, exactly. You were at Shul on Friday, surely. Okay, okay. And here's the here's the actual truth. I went to a pub on Thursday with my rabbi. Oh, cool. So um, that, that was actually what I ended up doing because <laughs> we were between two sessions that we did of live broadcasts, uh, one to do with uh, connections, but the other one was to do with Worship Summit. And we needed to go somewhere to get um, a bite to eat in between. And the only place we could go to was a pub. So that was my first trip to a pub. And yes, a trip to a pub with a rabbi, although there's a lot of what used to be MPLS trips abroad that used to contain that potentially. Sounds like the start of a joke. A rabbi and a tech guru walk into a pub. Maybe not. Yeah, no, it's not. But then on Saturday, I went to a Shabbat service because I was doing a live stream of Shabbat service for a rabbi who's leaving. And it was the first in-person or hybrid service that I've been to with Kiddush at the end. And the Kiddush came on airplane meal pack, which was <laughs> quite quite hilarious that everything was came in there and the uh, hulla was already pre-cut up in little baggies so it oh. was like it was like getting kids sweets of hulla but it wasn't as as fun but it was it was quite amazing actually and as you say Rebecca, it's so funny how fast you can go back to suddenly going, oh, that's normal. That's normal. I, I'm, I'll have my smoked salmon bagel in a box. <laughs> I hope that's something that doesn't last. I think that's depressing, isn't it? Kiddush is an airplane meal. Kiddush is an airplane meal. You wouldn't have ever thought of that. I think somebody's going to be starting a business called Kiddush in a Box now off our podcast. It absolutely works. We, we should demand rights, trademarks straight away. Absolutely. Anyway, I'd love to bring our guest in because I'm I'm just a little bit too excited about this one. Our guest this week is the New Statesman's Stephen Bush, rather than the New Statesman, comma, Stephen Bush. Many of you will already know Stephen from his journalism. A lot of you may know him from uh, the report that he's recently um, been commissioned to do from the Board of Deputies into uh, racial inclusivity within the Jewish community, um, which we are going to touch upon today. But we also would like to know about Stephen and really the journey that Stephen made to become Stephen Bush. Uh, so Stephen, 
Firstly, thank you so much for joining us. It's really delightful to have you. Thank you for having me. And as I said, I think what we'd really like to know before we sort of start talking about the report, but also about some of the kind of uh, current issues that are going on at the moment, of which there are many. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background, about growing up and about the place, if any, that your Jewish identity kind of really featured in that childhood and adolescence? Yeah, so it's odd because growing up, I would have said that I had a Jewish history or maybe a Jewish heritage rather than a Jewish identity in the my no one in my well this isn't actually true anymore but but no one in my mum's generation was observant uh, and everyone who was had sort of actually spiritual had found religiosity elsewhere but for sort of big festivals and also looking back for childcare convenient times uh, I would be Take, taken up to Cambridge to see my great grandfather or my great aunt, you know, so for Passover or for Yom Kippur or for Simchat Torah. And um, obviously, we had lots of the. It's odd I say this, and I realize I'm going to immediately lapse into doing a thing that witnesses rightly complained about uh, us doing in our community in the report, which is I'm going to go, I'm going to like the classical Jewish experience. Well, what I mean is actually the classical experience of, of being from an Ashkenazi immigrant background mm-hmm. in the you know, kind of, so for me, my Jewish heritage growing up was, you know, things like when Hitler stole pink rabbit or the Mel Brooks comedies or yeah. And occasionally then be, and you know, getting to watch um, the Prince of Egypt uh, over Passover if I'd been good. Right. <laughs> and I feel like, and I, I actually think this is probably true of both halves of my mixed race identity. And then I've become blacker as an adult and I've become more Jewish as an adult. I've become blacker as an adult because I mean, I'm speaking at you from Westminster where, where broadly the only times I will talk to other people who are black is if I'm talking to conservative cabinet ministers or cleaners. This is the thing is in Westminster journalism is so much more undiverse than, than the parties we cover now which is increasingly embarrassing um but also as i got older so when i got to university and, and and kind of having always been um on the left right you get to university and there are a number of i would say simplistic arguments and people put forward about israel palestine mm. and you suddenly kind of go oh actually i feel alienated by this oh that's that's weird and then of course if you've been on the left in the last decade you've had so many opportunities to feel alienated from the british left for me the story of my 20s and 30s has been feeling more aware of my two ethnic identities as distinct kind of i i think i mean obviously i still click click mixed race in the census mm. but i i suppose growing up i had a very strong sense of myself having a third identity it's so interesting though because you talk about it as happening in almost in negativity like yeah. that that the identity arised which i think for a lot of us is this is the truth with our minority identity that becomes stronger in our opposition to i wonder whether they've been positive because you you said there's now it's not true that there's not somebody who's observant in on your mother's side but i wonder for you as well has there been positive experiences for your that have made you feel more ownership over the Jewish identity or is it all in opposition? To- oh, oh, yeah, definitely. I think actually with, with, with both the composite halves of my mixed race identity, although exactly as you say, right, I think one feels more aware of your minoritized ethnic sense when it's pressured, as it were. But I've also gained a, a huge amount of joy from it. One, um, because it's strengthened friendships with with other Jewish people. It's strengthened uh, friendships on the other side with, 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 with other uh, black people. And, and also, you know, Specifically in the the coming together of doing this report, I've um I've I've gained a sort of I I hope a deeper and longer lasting spirituality right beyond kind of doing the sort of you know mm. that kind of thing that often it's quite tempting to do if you're non-observant Jewish where you kind of go like oh well, don't I, I don't believe in any of that shit it's like a way <laughs> that you kind of you kind of sort of convey that you're cool and I've gained a sort of new experience of of you know the text and of the wisdom I actually even have a travel a travel copy of the JPS Bible now in case I I want to read it I still don't believe in any of that stuff but i still but i've gained a, a a deeper appreciation of it from a from an ethical uh perspective mm. and also i think the the other sort of source of joy is then because my my dad's never been in the picture and so my maternal grandfather is really has always been this sort of most present male role model in um my life and since he's died m- feeling more aware of my jewish heritage is a way than it feels that i still have a a living connection to him and so that has been a sort of hugely positive aspect of of feeling yeah feeling more jewish uh, than i than i did uh, as a teenager or as a child so you said it was a convenience of 
babysitting at times. And I think that's a great way of saying it. And I, I do recognize that in the past, both myself and with my kids at times. It's like, oh, it's another festival, right? Um, oh, they're not supposed to be at school, but we'll see. We'll see. Did you, were you observant? Were you, did you go to any of the, uh, to shul during some of those festivals do you remember that times and did you have a bar mitzvah oh no i didn't have a bar mitzvah but i, I did um go to go to shul for for sort of yeah when i had been packed off man is a lot more unfair to my mother than it's really fair but um <laughs> when you know it wasn't just a kind of you know go and be with your your great granddad or your great aunt and just don't get underfoot kind of thing then <gasps> I, I would you know uh be, be taken to a synagogue and i you know would would sort of listen to if not i'll be always understand as obviously children often don't but yes, no, I would I would go. I mean, this is a question, and I know Rebecca can come in on this. A lot of people are now going, well, I miss my permits for a certain time, and I'm mm. now looking into doing an adult one. Uh, Rebecca, I think yours is this year, isn't it? I'm doing an adult bar mitzvah, in, uh, bat mitzvah even, in October. Originally, it was going to be last year, but it was postponed. It's been postponed twice now because of the um, pandemic. But... Yeah, I mean, similar to Stephen, I didn't have a Jewish upbringing, but I was very aware of my Jewish heritage. And also similar to Stephen from a negative point of view, it was really through learning about the Holocaust and, and watching Shoah at the age of 12 with my dad and stuff like that which I think is an incredibly negative way to come across Judaism, but so many of us do, or sort of, you know, get, get in touch with our Jewish identity with so many of us do. But yes, I'm going to have a bat mitzvah this year. Stephen, any thoughts about doing something similar? No, it's, it's, it's an odd one because I, I feel over the course of the last two years, I've progressed from being someone who, who doesn't go to synagogue to someone who now has a very weird intense relationship with the synagogue i don't go to we have a relationships of synagogues that we don't go to that's part of being it i have a, a very intense um, relationship with it i i it, it makes statements about issues of global concern on twitter and i i feel very proud of it i i go onto its website on on Thursday and I think you know maybe I should go this week and so I'm so I, I don't want to rule anything out because if you'd said to me three years ago you'll have this sort of weirdly intense engagement with a, a synagogue you don't go to I would have gone no that will never happen I, I think the the ethical and spiritual guidance and I'm gonna I'm not just saying this because I'm on a liberal Judaism affiliated podcast but <laughs> when I when I did the conversation I from those things where one of the the questions was yeah well well this wasn't a transformative document and I briefly felt very het up about this but what I like about it is like that one of the things I look for, at least from spiritual guidance, is to be challenged, right? Is to be told I haven't been transformative enough. And I think then um, one of the pitfalls of becoming a more secular society is we lose the role of mm. people whose job it is to tell us to be more perfect versions of ourselves. So uh, I assume that at some point I will progress from having this very intense relationship with a synagogue I don't go to, to having an intense relationship with a synagogue I go to intermittently. And yeah, then maybe by the time I'm 50, I, I, I will, I will be ready to go. Maybe I should actually commit and have my own bar mitzvah. But, uh, but I, I feel, but I feel like I'm some way off from having, progress to that that said as i say it was only two years ago and i would have laughed at the idea that yeah. i would feel intensely aware of, of what the synagogue i don't go to does so we, we <laughs> should explain to the listeners that um if they do hear any sirens etc it's because you're at the houses of parliament at the moment so it's nothing major it's just that's where you are you say the synagogue you go, don't go to which is the synagogue that you don't go to so we can tell people so the synagogue i, I don't go to is kahila actually um, okay. Yeah. So that is the. Yeah. That's the. Yeah. So that's the, the unusual website activity of someone going looking at the links but never clicking on them. That's 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 me. I I am. Yeah. That that is the. But yeah. So it's a great pathway, really, into I think a lot of us have been struggling with in a lot of different ways. Kahila is very uh, public about where it stands on recent events and you know has shown for their own community huge leadership in 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 that, but. For me, I, I realise I'm so in the Jewish world that all my echo chamber really is other is other Jewish communities dealing with um, situation in Israel and Palestine. And uh, whereas for you, you are not in the Jewish world doing it, however much you've had recent very strong connections with one part of it. But you're operating in a world that isn't the Jewish world. And I wonder how it's been for you, particularly given the job you do, being Jewish during this time, whether, you know, there's been, you know, we're talking a lot about increase in anti-Semitism, but also a lot of people that I speak to about dealing with feeling like they have to be the defenders or apologetic is, you know, about Israel. So I wonder what it, how it's been for you. That's a really good question. A good friend of mine was 
texted me the other day saying, oh, I bet you're doing your sort of weird head tilt, where apparently I do this, used, used to do this thing at university when I would kind of, where he said, oh, the, the, actually, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> On the other hand, there are some things that I strongly oppose. Um, yeah, I'm not a fan of BB, but... Yeah, the kind, yeah, the sort of weird sort of, yeah, kind of sideways nodding doll. I mean, yeah, so let's, let's explicitly um, take uh, last week, where, where one, um, like most people in the Jewish world, I do have people I care deeply about who are in shelters cowering mm. from rockets, right? On the other hand, I, I think that we are also getting a demonstration that, I mean, you know, that the quiet occupation that BB seems to have promised doesn't, doesn't seem to be that quiet at the moment. But on the other hand, when I'm covering international news, I find it deeply disquieting that people who have not noticed that there has been a civil war, acts of, um, you know, acts of horrendous sexual violence in, in Ethiopia's Tigray region for six months, for six months, are suddenly demanding that I do this kind of ritualistic, oh, yes, yes, I accept that the state of Israel is awful. And indeed, I am awful for wanting any connection with the state of Israel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is, a, to me, distinct challenge that comes from being Jewish in non-Jewish spaces. I think the interesting thing is where it kind of is heightened by being mixed race is I often feel to take the sort of Tigray example, right? Then the reason why people don't go on about that is partly about, anti, I think, anti-Semitism, but also about a kind of anti-Africa kind of, oh, well, of course, of course, they're up to all sorts of, of no good, right? Low expectations. Yeah. And so I, I do spend a lot of kind of, yeah, kind of what I think of as the, am I going to ruin my day by getting into into this, which is obviously the 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 weird horror and the weird privilege of of not looking like an anti-Semite's idea of a Jewish person is you spend a lot of time going am I going to do this today I don't need to do this today no one expects me to do this whereas I yeah I think if I looked well not so much my granddad but if I looked a great deal like my great grandfather uh, then I suspect I would feel much more the kind of oh the eyes are turning to me oh, am I being expected to kind of a pine on Israel. I think that's a problem that I think we all may have suffered at one time or another. I remember um, being part of my local residence association and we had an issue here that one of the farms in the local area was bought by the Federation. The Federation were talking about turning it into a cemetery. And I'm sitting there in the residence association and they're discussing this. And somebody turned around and said, well, we don't want them buried here. And they were sitting next to me at the time and they didn't clock that I was Jewish. Um, they didn't clock that actually my my grandfather is actually was Federation and is and is in a Federation uh, cemetery. Am I guilty for not standing up at times and having a fight over something which I know I see it in front of me and you must see it in front of you at times as well, Stephen? You're like, have I got enough? I I don't have to stand around waving a flag at every single thing that moves in front of me. In fact, I wonder if sometimes waving a flag and complaining about every single wrong just makes it worse. And somebody's going to shout at me for this now. It's a really good question because, yeah, and maybe this, you know, reflects my deep reservoirs of, of self-hatred. But one of the things I always find very strange is I find it so much easier when someone says something than is anti-traveller or is just sexist because, bluntly, because I benefit from misogyny, Right. Uh, as a deeply mediocre man, misogyny has been has been a huge friend to me. And so you don't have that sense of, oh, you know, am I being chippy? Are they going to think I'm being chippy? Is this going to per perpetually color every interaction I have with this person uh, for the future? I think it's not so much that if you raise every single thing, people get annoyed. It's it's partly also about, about one's own effectiveness. Um, mm. you, you can't be an effective advocate for any form of change if you are tired and unhappy all the time. And so sometimes you have to exercise the self-care of going, I am not going to get into this topic with this person or this topic at this time. Or I think, you know, to use that as an example, right? For someone to talk like that, that, that about the bearing of that is already so upsetting than the idea of having to go, and now I'm going to keep myself together and make a rational account of myself in this argument is just something where I at least go, do you know what? I do not have the abilities to make that argument well in this moment, in this time. And I think some of it is about going, yeah, is this a moment when I can be the most effective and happy? Yeah. Because if you aren't happy, you can't be effective. So we saw at the weekend uh, the two different marches and two different approaches to things. I don't know. I just feel like I'm shouting down a tunnel at the time with some of these issues. The demonstration, I found the demonstrations really difficult on a lot of levels, in part because it, it's so polarised and actually 
actually it's really if, if you look at them in contrast to the demonstrations that happened in Israel and again maybe this is my echo chamber that I'm seeing posted a lot of people coming together to march seems so much more constructive than people shouting slogans at each other that just seems to encourage even more virulent hate and actually that I felt like that about the pro-Israel march if I'm honest as well as I felt about other marches is that it felt divisive and I think that the last thing that either of our communities any of our communities need is more divisiveness. I've had some really difficult conversations this week I was on an interfaith group compiled exactly in this moment between uh, Palestinians, Muslims, Israelis, Jews. And I mean, it was horrific at <laughs> points mm-hmm. in terms of the, the discomfort of, of hearing each other. And it's been happening. I don't know if either of you or any of you have been on Clubhouse hearing the conversation that's going on between Israelis and Palestinians. I've, I'm aware that it's there. I haven't been on any of them. So I've been on them quite a lot. I'm not speaking, just listening. Mm-hmm. And it's really uncomfortable. It's really, really uncomfortable. But it's been the most constructive. These conversations mm-hmm. have been the most constructive thing for me because I can't go to Israel and change politics, right? But I can ensure that here our community is part of a conversation and is not going to build up more Islamophobia, more anti-Semitism, but actually that we also don't shy away from having these conversations because I've discovered the level of ignorance from both sides about how uh, Jews feel about Israel or about how Muslims feel about Palestine or about Israelis is there's such a diverse view and such a lack of knowledge there and that is something unlike being on a demonstration that I feel like I can constructively do and it's not been easy at all I found it really hard I found it really hard watching also watching people's faces as they're hearing uncomfortable mm. truths um, or uncomfortable perceptions but I'm a big believer this is where the rabbi bit I suppose comes in for me is that God lives in the discomfort that it is in the discomfort but the ability to stay there that brings about change. I'm struck by listening to both you and Stephen on this and I think I'm right in saying although jump in and correct me if I'm wrong that Charlie the sort of discussions you're talking about in many ways are quite sort of structured organized discussions where people are saying let's get together and have this difficult conversation whether that's on Clubhouse or whether it's in another forum. Um, So people have made a sort of active choice knowing that it's going to be uncomfortable to join in that conversation. Stephen, I get the impression from what you were saying that you're in a non-Jewish space and obviously you're coming up against a lot of people who will be talking about the situation is Israel-Palestine because obviously a lot of people are. But, you know, the conversation comes up almost, you know, as part of anything else. And then you're put in a situation where, as you said, do you actually have to go there? Do you want to go there at that sort of time? What kind of determines your decision about whether or not to to get engaged? Yeah, so it's a combination of lots of things. There's firstly the, you know, am I in the headspace to do this argument Mm. well? Secondly, do I think this is a, a setting that is conducive to having this conversation? So, um, I mean, obviously, we have this weird situation now where we currently don't have editorial meetings as we would would once have had them, although obviously we hope that that will not continue to be the case for very much longer. But in an editorial meeting, if someone were to say something I felt was um, simplistic or unhelpful editorial meetings are a great place for hammering out the shape of the magazine stuff about content but i think in terms of bringing someone up is it's not a it's not a Mm. conducive conversation go actually look i think you're wrong for xyz reason unless it's about the content of the actual um magazine Uh, yeah actually so i'll give a a kind of concrete example of something where i kind of thought am i going to get into this and in the end i decided i was not going to get into this which was the economist's political column this week talks about how um about foreign policy in multi-ethnic, you know, multi-ethnic Britain. And basically, it l- sort of laments this idea that, you know, in the past, politicians uh, did foreign policy based on national interest and, you know, their kind of Socratic understanding of how best to do foreign policy. And now, and perhaps I'm being unfair, and maybe I was coming to this in a bad mood, but it felt to me that the subtext of this piece was we have a problem now that um, conservative policy on Israel is refracted through the need to hold Hendon, and Labour policy on Israel is refracted through the need to to hold uh, seats in Birmingham. Essentially, the problem is the Jews and the Muslims, they're a bit too influential on half. Which, um, one, I just think what, so what we're, we are holding, yeah, it talked about, you know, the Conservatives' previous sort of pro-Arab positions. Oh, are we, are we describing um, British foreign policy as 19, from 1945 to 1980, sort of as, as good? 
Yeah, was the was 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 were the were those decisions taken in terms of our exit from empire and our decision to prioritize oil wealth over democracy? Do we think those were net positive for the world? But apparently, the desire of someone in Harrow to drive cheaply is is that's that's the sub foreign policy fine. But the concern for someone about um, their family in Israel or their opposition to the to Netanyahu's government, and I just looked at it and I thought, do you know what? I don't think that the person who's written this article is only one Stephen Bush blog or one Stephen Bush tweet <laughs> away from realizing the problem. And also I kind of, you know, I, I have to put my hands up and say, maybe my read of uh, that column was deeply uncharitable and unfair, right? So it's partly I go, is my read of this unfair? But do I actually think I am going to be the person mm-hmm. who convinces? Who are you really arguing with, as it were? Because I kind of think mostly the onus isn't, at an individual level, conversations with, between two people are the only way you get understanding. But in a sort of semi-public setting, as you kind of inevitably are if you're a journalist, you're actually arguing with a third group of people mm. who are audience. And sometimes you have to ask yourself, well, does the audience want me to do sort of a, here's a blog about and a column you haven't read in a slightly obscurantist bit of complaining? Um and then I go, actually, maybe the answer is no. We all have this problem. What we want to do is achieve sort of the Tiananmen Square standing in front of the tank, change the world in one one shot. And I know where you're coming from, Stephen. You're, you're saying it's like every single thing, none of these are like super, this is going to be the bullet that's going to finish this. This is going to solve it. It's going to be finished overnight. But also the other point is that if you don't layer that in, you don't know which one of these things is going to make it happen. And you're in a, in a very good position to sort of say, actually, I can take these spot shots and maybe some of them will land. And if I don't take them, if I don't do it, I'll sit there and go, well, should I have done it? And do, do I... Re- uh, regret never doing it in your past experience do you feel there was a couple of those where you've actually where you think i have made that article that i wrote that thing that i did has made this difference move forward yeah so i think so i always assume that and hope that my readers have the same experience i do with reading other people's work which is that no one as you say it's the pot thing no one piece changes someone's mind but you hopefully do something that changes how people think about it and there have been pieces which people have come up to me and said well that changed how i thought about about this or about that um i guess i have to be honest the other thing that tends to happen when i sit there going oh should i have said something about this should i have written something about that is if after a while the feeling of should i have said something doesn't go away i just do essentially i go okay right i I need to take this unease as a sign that i did get the decision Mm -hmm. wrong and i should write something now i guess you know that the challenge comes when you kind of feel like you've exhausted what there is to say about it. That was the thing that I struggled with, with yeah, Jeremy Corbyn and the problem of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party was after I'd written in 2018, well, look, his inability and unwillingness to deal with this problem, as well as being a problem in of itself, does not, to me at least, suggest that any of this stuff that he says he'll do that I'm broadly supportive of, he would actually be able to do. Mm. But the other thing is, once you've kind of said that, you suddenly go, oh, right, what, do I do I just write that again every time that the problem isn't dealt with? You know, when it gets to a point where I think, oh, no, the problem isn't just that you don't want to deal with this, the problem is you yourself. What do I go, oh, by the way, and and, and that is the thing, uh, that, that is to me the thing I still struggle to work out whether or not I got the balance right on, because sometimes I think, well, actually, I should have just kept going, my previous piece still stands, <laughs> and maybe that would have chip, chipped away at, at slightly more people's views. But on the other hand, there's the question, well, what do you do when you feel you've, you've, you have made all of the points you have left in you? Do you keep trying, or do you try and have a conversation with a, a you know, a more responsive audience? Let's come back to the report then. If anybody listening has missed that you did um, or were commissioned to do a report for the Board of Deputies on racial equality within the Jewish community. And you began at the beginning of saying about um, somebody saying to you about it not being transformative. I think there are many of us who think the report itself being done was was transformative moment in our in our community's acknowledgement of of having that, that we that we had some learning to do at the very least, and has opened up. I think a lot of eyes and um, has made us ask some very difficult questions of ourselves. I think there are, for me personally, some seriously transformative parts of the report not least the report itself. But I wonder for you, when you you talk about more work to do, saying something, are there things that you didn't say 
in that report that you think actually now coming out should have been said or things that you held back from saying because you know it wasn't the right moment to say yet yes I think there, there, there were things where I kind of consciously thought I look I don't want to get in the weeds of, of certain things where I kind of, I mean, I love my new Sinead, so I always have a thing where I oh, should I have got more in the weeds on this thing? There are things where, um, so actually I'm going to give a very specific personal example, which I don't think was particularly important to the report as a whole. And I think it was therefore right not to include it. But it does continue to upset me personally when people ask questions like, well, which ones of the witnesses are black and which ones are of color and which ones are Sephardi? And it's like, guys, adoption has been around for millennia and being mixed race has been around quite literally since the beginning of time. Do I need to do an explanatory chart for you? <laughs> and I, I think the the thing that was difficult with that is I don't actually think that the person who kept asking that question was doing so because they wanted to be deeply offensive to anyone who is adopted or anyone who is mixed race. They were doing so because they wanted to find some kind of angle on, well, there has to be something controversial to say about this report. It was about ignorance rather than malice. And I kind of didn't want to get into sort of kind of also, right, because it is that is niche, right? That is something and for some of our witnesses, they do feel very clearly that they are one or the other. And for those of us who are mixed race or those of us who are adopted, right, it is, it is a very different and actually deeply unpleasant way of framing that question. That was something which I didn't realize would be an issue till the report had happened. And it's one of those things where I kind of think, oh, I, I wish I had kind of been able to go, you know, kind of, I, you know, future Stephen had been able to give evidence to past Stephen. I would have just gone, look, uh, people who are mixed race, people who are adopted exist. And it's just ob it's obviously crass to go, so this um, this Chinese person whose parents are both Sephardi Jewish, which, which one of these buckets are they in? Are they of color or are they Sephardi Jewish? He's like, well, they are equally both. And so I think that's one of the ones where I kind of, yeah, if I if I did a take two, I would do look. I would I would have written more about our sort of our strands because I realised there were things I took as as read mm. that some people just didn't understand, and I think it would have been useful because I think people want wanted to be seen in this report. It would have been useful, I think, for me to go on in more length about my belief in inverted commas, as one people were at person wrote it. My belief that these uh, these categories are fungible. So, well, no, the belief that an adopted person is both their identities is not a belief. It's a matter of uh, law, a matter of theology. It's, it is uncontested. So do you think there means there's an opening for a possibility of a, a second report, or the, the follow-up? Can you write the second? Or would you see writing something in a different vein to follow this on? The second thing I will do will be a, a kind of leaner sort of how is implementation going? Are there any things that I proposed last time around and it turned out were unworkable or created just produced outcomes we didn't expect? And so the next one will be sort of leaner and therefore I think won't get into issues such as that. I'm very keen that the the next one of these, because, you know, most reports have a follow-up, should be someone who is not wedded to the various calls I made that were controversial in one way or the other and can and doesn't, you know, doesn't come to this from the... Um, from the perspective of, right, let's defend every decision Stephen Bush made about what was it was and wasn't in, in or out of scope. So I, I, I strongly feel that it would not be good for me to do a full-blown second one of these because, um, yeah, one of the things I've, I've wanged on a bit in this process is, is the idea of trying to create a complaints culture, right, one where people make complaints, accept complaints are good, and, accept, and the topic of those complaints sort of takes them on the chin, but also does so in a knowledge that they won't face outsized and ridiculous sanctions if they do take them on the chin. And I think one of the problems we have in the UK as a whole is we have very high theoretical sanctions for bad behaviour. And it means that everyone sort of runs around trying to avoid the very high theoretical sanctions, but no one ever actually improves. And one of the things which is important for me to model is the next person has to be able to come in, has to be able to complain about my work, has to come up with all sorts of, in my view, wrongheaded and terrible ideas about what I got wrong. And then I have to respond, take that on board and, and deal with that in a mature way. So but I do um, I do sort of hope that I will at some point write something longer form about, you know, 
the present moment of which all of this will be part of it because I think there's a there's an interesting challenge in general about how we relate to one another in a diverse society how we relate to uh, complex histories in which we are mostly all both perpetrators and are the oppressed I mean I just say this because yeah because I am uh, as obviously as I always am on a working day I am in parliament and I can literally from my window I stare directly out at the Churchill statue you know the importance of having him as a national rallying symbol is that more important than the importance of acknowledging that all of those 40s politicians, Clement Attlee, Winston Churchill, Ernest Bevan, who was also you know, an anti-Semite to top it off, were also committed imperialists, right? They, yeah. they didn't fight that war going, oh, now we're going to divest ourselves of empire. They will, will, will fight this war and then we'll actually double down on our, our imperial possession. So my background is from South Africa. That's another country you just can't walk around without realizing that there were atrocities as bad things. There's also good things. And it's trying to work out where you say we can't keep apologizing for something that happened in the past well we can we can sit here and keep apologizing or we can sit there and work out at what point do we sit there and accept the apology and move on where do we look at the truth of reconciliation where do we look at these things and say do you know what and i, I look looking at the, the the protest this weekend and i go sooner or later you're going to have to stop sitting there with a chalkboard writing this is how many of this you did and this is how many of that i did and this is how many so i've got less of the bad bits and you've got more of those we've got to stop there and draw a line under this and i think the south africa point is really well made and the other half of my family is from sub-saharan africa and is from south africa and you know the, the kind of weird thing about you know the, the way politics in there i think has, has completely failing at the moment to, to deal with this question of well one this problem where there are never any meaningful apologies, but God God knows there are a lot of apologies and a lot of, of raking up of, of old ground. But the weird thing is, of course, is then would I, if I could press a button, undo all of those terrible things? Well, selfishly, no, because if I undid all of those terrible things, I would vanish from existence. And I'm quite attached to my <laughs> existence here, here, in, here in London. And I think, yeah, I do think there's a, a problem that the corporate phrase that I've really grown to hate is acknowledge. Yeah, someone says we acknowledge our history of X. We acknowledge our contribution to Y. Because I feel that often what happens is, is that big corporations end up kind of caught in this perpetual loop of acknowledgement. but they never move from acknowledgement to action. And there are always more bad things you can acknowledge, right? And clearly for some people, getting organizations to acknowledge things does feel like a victory. But my fear is that a lot of the time it's actually not a particularly meaningful one. It's really easy to get organizations to acknowledge past wrongs and to acknowledge their kind of nebulous role in a sort of systemic you know, issues. Because you know, the, the joy of systemic and society-wide issues is they ain't my problem. You know, they're, they're obviously bigger than me. And I do think we do need to work out a way of yeah, getting beyond the kind of perpetual let's apologize for yeah, let's apologize for this or let's have an argument about whether or not we should apologize for that and start moving on. Okay, well, this is the world we live in, right? I am a beneficiary of a number of terrible things that happened in the past and indeed the beneficiary of a number of terrible things that happened in the present. I'm the victim of a number of terrible things that happened in the past and a number of terrible things that happened in the present. But what are we going to do about that as a shared society rather than as you say this kind of your chalkboard here my chalkboard there well they fired the rocket first and you know yada 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 well that's that's just not no way to to go forward and proceed i always find though that one of the reasons we struggle to proceed is because we're lacking a language is that there's um actually oj talked about it when he was on our podcast about feeling like worried about saying anything in case you get it wrong and that what's going to come next and one of the things i found really useful coming out of the of the report was a kind of site I mean there were lots of useful things but one of the things for me was a thinking exercise that happened was the signposting towards the 10 things you should never say to a convert um, article from several years ago in the Jewish news which was about okay if we set some guidelines about where are you walking into things that actually you shouldn't say and I have this conversation also often with somebody I work with from the trans community as well like what are the things you can ask and have a conversation about what are the things that actually you shouldn't be saying and shouldn't be asking and shouldn't be on the table for you know I think that there's something for us as liberal Judaism we're trying to do a lot of difficult conversations of having the conversations that other people aren't having in order to not just acknowledge but actually to be able to to move forward and to to know to have constructive conversations that are going somewhere that are not just about talking but actually about some sort of um, movement and 
I think that some guidelines of saying to people, these are the things, right? This is where actually you really need to understand you're walking into a hurtful space or these are are the things that you need to acknowledge. Because I think people end up being paralyzed by fear about speaking because they're so worried about offending that actually they're they're stopping their learning or stopping being able to be in the room or are are really worried about that shaming of getting it wrong. And it's not that I want to walk into a space where we're accidentally making errors. But I think unless we do and know that we're making them, we're just going to stay in exactly the same place of acknowledgement, but actually it meaning very little because we don't really understand what it is that we're acknowledging. Is there a word that should replace acknowledgement or is that just too simplistic to replace it with another word? The thing is, I think as a concept, it's useful. I think the problem is that it, it always needs to be an and, right? It always needs to right. be accompanied by something else right we acknowledge and we do x it's like retain and explain with the whole statue issue right yeah exactly retain and explain mm. i think is a, a really a really good um yeah, yeah. A, a really good e- example right because mm. um yeah and, and i actually have in some ways quite a traditional view about some of the statue stuff and i'm actually quite uncomfortable with organizations which are only there because of that record of exploitation right and i say that as you know i say that as an oxford graduate right this idea that I would not have had the doors that that degree opened open for me if there wasn't in the 19th century this, okay, an already ancient institution, but an institution that was able to grow fat and prosperous off a bunch of quite shady stuff. And now I'm going to get rid of the statue because I can't bear to look at it. It to me isn't the same as the Rose statue in the University of Cape Town, right, where there is a different imposition, there's a different argument for getting rid of that. But I'm quite, I'm just as, yeah, I mean, look, let's face it, any a prestigious university in, in the United Kingdom in 2021 has a, a living donor who is a little bit dodgy. I would be quite uncomfortable if in a hundred years time, someone went, you know, we, we had no way of knowing that there were some problems with opioids. And well, we had no way of knowing that, um, that people were treated quite badly by, by some oil, oil rich families. Uh, I guess it must just be different history. Probably we should rename that building. And, and, and that's why I'm instinctively just in a retain and explain pace, because I feel it acknowledges that I am yet to hear an example of any of these statues where there wasn't someone at the time going, that, that guy's pretty shady. And so I kind of feel that in an odd way, if you if you get rid, you, you're kind of sort of going, oh, well, none of us knew differently. But where the and explain part comes in is you go, well, look, Here's the here's the context that we should have put on this statue at the time. What you're advocating for seems to me to be not ending up in a polarized position where there is there is and, and I feel like we're in this moment where we're being pushed into those positions mm. where there isn't the and in and that or if you dare to say and you're you're accused of justifying. But that actually it's possible to recognize something, to acknowledge something without it being a justification of it. It scares me, this polarisation. I know it scares a lot of people, but I think in every moment that we get to, we seem to be pushing more and more to be completely and utterly binary. I always remember um, a a TV advert for The Guardian newspaper about 25 years ago, where it showed a punk running along and it looked like he was about to attack somebody um, in a suit. And then they rewound the video a bit further back. And eventually what you got to is you saw that he was actually, there was a load of bricks falling from somewhere or something like this. And he was running to push him out of the way. But when you actually look at something in a really small context and it's Mm. a really small window, you don't actually understand and appreciate the complexity. You know, you're talking about a report in the future. What do you you see is going to be the things that you are hoping to see the changes in? One I hope to see than the the bulk of the recommendations are implemented and the ones that aren't are not implemented because they didn't work. And so the, the next report is primarily a kind of what Stephen Bush got wrong document, which is why I expect I won't enjoy writing and I'll, I'll send lots of kind of nomic tweets about how the, the new report author is bad. But I think what I also hope to see from it is, is that point that I told makes about being the importance of the word and. Then I think then we, I hope then what comes out of it is we model as a community to the rest of the country and the rest of the world this idea of of most issues actually being something and issues rather than this kind of terrifying something or world that we increasingly seem to be living in which i think is yeah a terrifying place to be for any form of minority i think it's actually just a bad place for a country to be because most of the way you get progress is by finding points of ands rather than going it's this all uh, and i hope that the thing that the report's implementation will show is that you can make change in a 
something and way because because we are such a diverse community, not just in terms of the, my terms of reference, but in terms of whether we are religious or not religious, how we experience our religiousness, et cetera, et cetera, right? You know you're being very Jewish, right? Elu Elu. So this is a big main part of Judaism, which is these and these are the word, the living words of God, right? That we live constantly in these with this and this. You're becoming rabbinic, Stephen. That's going to be, it's not going to be bimits or it's going to be the rabbinate. By the time you're 50, Stephen, and we want to see you ordained as a rabbi. Forget the bar mitzvah. We want Rabbi Bush. I think first of all, we have to do after this call is ring up Rabbi Leah and ask her when she's booking you in for your bar mitzvah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, and that's it. We'll, we'll be on that call straight away, and we're all coming, by the way. Anyway, I think we should um, bring it round to talking about our regular cultural slots. I, for one, am fascinated to know what what Stephen Bush does when he's not writing or sitting on podcasts talking to random people about the report that he wrote. So, Stephen, have you got any recommendations for either things that you've been reading or good Netflix? box sets good podcasts to listen to other than your own and other than ours obviously yeah so actually the kind of the big thing that we've started doing in lockdown which i think is a huge um yeah if you if you live you know whether you live with flatmates or you live with a partner this is kind of a this has been a, a huge and transformative improvement in how we live in lockdown is that we now impose a film on each other what we oh. used to do have this complex thing of sort of shortlisting and and I, I enjoy the Marvel movies, but you end up kind of going, oh, you end up watching Notting Hill or a Marvel, Marvel movie because you're not in, that's what happens when you're not imposing on the other person. That's the compromise. And midway through lockdown, we just went, should we just, one of you, one of us picks on a Friday, one of us picks on a Saturday, one of us picks on a Sunday. And it has meant, so um, it meant we, we saw uh, The Wife, which is a brilliant film with um, Glenn Close. And I mean, actually, Jonathan Price mm-hmm. is a great actor, but I wasn't that convinced by his portrayal of an American mm. Jew, to be honest. But but, um, but it's a brilliant it's a brilliant film otherwise otherwise amazing soundtrack. But a film we just would not despite the fact either one of us could have picked it would not have happened. We also saw a happy end, uh, so she speaks fluent French, so we watched it with subtitles, which to be honest is not a film that I particularly enjoyed, but I felt it improved me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I was, I was glad to have, have got through it. And uh, we're rewatching Six Feet Under, which I just think is um. one of the best, yeah, kind of, of the naughtiest TV programs I think it's on, which is aged the best. I think it's a fascinating exploration of death and life and what it means to grieve and to grow. But characters are all very sort of Californian and self-involved in a way that some people find very annoying. But I think it's a, a brilliant program. And I'm reading very predictable this. I'm reading The Mirror and the Light now. It's out in paperback because I just cannot be having with hardback books fair enough <laughs> i love the way that you watch films and think that they've improved you even though you didn't enjoy them <laughs> so charlie um what are you reading anything arrived on your amazon uh kindle list oh well i have on my amazon kindle list um arrived uh sapiens so i have to i'm committed to leo to reading that but the thing that i'm reading at the moment is uh jews don't count i keep coming up against it mm. in uh coming up against it that make that already gave my kind of away what i felt i thought i was gonna feel about the book before i read it but um i'm about halfway through and i'm finding it it, it's it's a book that's keeping me awake at night, um, not because it's so so um, deep or um, but because it's it's making me ask questions about where you stand when you hear things um, and how do you feel like like our own our own location when we come to understand things. So um, he gives this, there's the bit that I've just passed where um, David Baddiel is talking about um, speaking to David Cameron about the use of the Y word. And um, I spoke about that. I was interviewed by the BBC for it as well. So I can remember exactly, it was during the Tottenham Football Club. And um, I've been having these conversations with my kids about it as well, who um, didn't even know the Y word existed, didn't even know what that meant, which is fascinating. So they can name all the other initial words that you're not you know by their initial they're not walking around the house um you know giving racial slurs they do know what they are but whereas that they had no idea existed so it's making me ask really interesting questions of myself about that rebecca what are you reading at the moment or watching ah well i have just finished reading hadley freeman's the house of glass which i've come to quite late because i think it was published a couple of years ago again i don't know if either of you have read that but highly recommended uh it's about her jewish 
family. So primarily her grandmother, um, but also her sort of great, great uncles. And it's the story of them. What I personally found interesting was when I was reading the opening chapter, it was about the shtetl that um, her grandparents were, or her grandma was brought up in. And I actually looked it up on my map of Poland and found out that it was 10 miles, five, 10 miles away from the village where my own great grandparents were brought up. So I think I'm probably loosely related to Hadley Freeman in some way, but I haven't quite found the proof. So that's a highly recommended book. When you start doing the um, the maps of where you're from and this and that and the other, and I've had this a little bit of this conversation with Charlie in the past, uh, you find that it all interrelates to everywhere. Actually, me, me and you may be related, Leo. We've not actually had that conversation yet, have we? No, no, no. And uh, there's also, you know, and then half the time you end up having this conversation, or I have in this conversation, I find yet another person has some relationship to South Africa or somewhere around there. And it just goes around and around and around. One day we have to get my mother on the podcast. My mother who um, grew up in, uh, in Liverpool in a religious Catholic family who um, recently has discovered she's basically related to half of Ireland, which is a really, you know, there's there's a lot to pick apart about there about um, about identity and discovery and, you know. That's um, going to be a Freudian episode. Well, yes, indeed. <laughs> that one we're all going to have to lie down afterwards after meeting your mother on a podcast, Charlie. And Leah, what about you? What are your recommendations for our listeners? Uh, nothing at the moment. This has been a really busy time for me. Uh, I just have run off the event after event after event and haven't had a chance to uh, unwind. I'm still halfway through Shit's Creek, which is nice enough that I can just sit there and watch it and not really worry about it. Stephen, have you discovered Shit's Creek yet? A lot of people have recommended it to me as something that I would quite like because I quite like a lot of Michael Schur comedies. How are you finding it leo oh it's great it's absolutely great and it gets more and more relatable as you go through it so are you david which one are you (laughs) i think as as you found as you thought you were alexa and you've turned into moira no i wish i was alexa but i realize that i'm moira um stephen what i would say about schitt's creek is give it i don't know if you found this as well it was about three or four episodes before i really started getting into it the first couple of episodes are kind of like okay well it's quite fun but it's a bit silly and yeah i'm not really sure but three or four episodes in when the characters really start to develop i think is you you, you get hooked and the great thing about each episode is literally 22 minutes long a bit like our podcast like each episode you discover more and more about the families and personalities of the hosts of this podcast which is a a really perfect way i think to draw us uh, to a close talking about shit's creek again exactly (laughs) Stephen. if you do watch shit's creek and if you do like it then please give a shout out to us for the recommendations if you watch it and hate it please do not blame us just keep quiet about it (laughs) but yes i think a great place to wrap up Stephen. thank you again so much for joining us i hope you've um appreciated the slightly mad eclectic conversation but tell our listeners if they don't already know where they can find you online if they should want to hear more from you. So you can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB, or you can find me, more importantly, on the New Statesman website, although you do have to register to get your one, I think it's one free thing from me a week now, or maybe, I don't know, they change it all the time. But you should go into the New Statesman website because there's actually a control chip that shocks me every time I don't recommend that people go to the New Statesman website to find ah, my stuff. Okay. And of course, your podcast, which I can also recommend. <laughs> uh, Charlie, what about you? Where can we find you? Given that um, my uh, daughter's new electric guitar has just arrived, you might be finding me certainly not in the house anymore after today's episode. But if I do manage to uh, lock her in a quiet room, then uh, you can find me on Twitter as Rab Charlie, and the same on Clubhouse and on Facebook as Charlie Beginsky. And Leo? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, although I decided really that me and the journey of Twitter is coming to an end. I think the, the the level of quality on there has just got worse and worse and worse. I thought it was going to come back, but it, it just it just seems to get worse. Uh, but I'm mainly on Facebook uh, is where you can find me uh, as Leo Mindell. And I actually agree with that. And that's probably a topic for another episode. Um, I'm usually avoiding Twitter now, as I did this weekend. But if you did want to find me avoiding Twitter, it's at R. Singerman. Um, you can follow my shawl, which is at Kingston Libshaw. Or I'm also at Instagram, Rebecca Singerman Knight. So thank you again, uh, Stephen, for joining us. Thank you for listening. 
We are also on Twitter at Do You Know What? And if you have enjoyed the episode, please do uh, give us a five-star review. That'll be lovely. And thank you very much and see you all soon. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>